On May the 21st, 1924, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb committed what they believed to be a perfect crime. But after the police found the evidence they left behind, the case will be closed within 10 days. Once the motives behind what was dubbed as the crime of the century will end up uncovered, the public will be left to debate. Was this the case of Oliadu, or would both of them have resorted to commit crime on their own? This is the story of the death of Bobby Franks. You know the video of that little girl who is running towards her mom inside of a room and be like, can I say a bad word? Can I say a bad word? That is me right now. Because if your kids are listening, remove them from the perimeter before continuing because I want to say a couple of F words. Guys, I do not have a sense of smell for about five months. If you have any tips and tricks, please send them my way. I have about a sniff in me a week. And guess what? Guess what did that sniff went to this week? <sighs> How do I even explain this? You know one of those alcohol-free lemony wipes in KFC? Yeah. Yeah. If you ever wanted to feel better about your day, think about this very moment. Me and KFC have not smelled a thing in like the whole week of that being like, great, this is great, this progression, I love it. And then that being the only smell I could smell for a week and then also losing my voice. What is going on? Why am I falling apart? I'm not even 30 yet. Like life will only get worse. (laughs) The only sniff I had in me was inside of a KFC and it wasn't even like the smell of chicken. I I don't know what to tell you, except that the story I'm bringing you today is truly probably the closest to, like, Nazi history that we are getting in terms of ideologies. Because, listen, we all watch Criminal Minds, right? That is a brave assumption to make. Well, if you haven't, you know, now is the time to binge on that motherfucker because it's great, okay? It has its flaws. But as a premise of the show, as a show that literally follows the same structure each and every episode, I loved it. But basically, the types of criminals on Criminal Minds that freaked me out the most were the couples. Usually heterosexual, they'd be weird, okay? <laughs> it's like white, straight people, they, they can get a bit strange. It can, can be a bit weird, you know? Just if you're white, at least tend to be, you know, interested in the same sex. <laughs> what are you saying? The couples that freaked me out the most were those who would prey on a victim together. And then they would like kill a person to just get off and like have sex next to them. I would be like, what is going on? I cannot comprehend. Like my brain cannot wrap itself around this situation. They always freak me out the most. And in this episode, we are kind of 
gonna be talking about one such couple. I don't know if they get off on this, but they sure as hell thought they're gonna commit a perfect crime. And just like so many individuals who are like, ooh, this is gonna be a perfect crime, we're doing it for the thrill of it, we are gonna get away with this, those motherfuckers always get caught first. Legitimately, they always get caught within like five to ten days. It's like the max expiry date is coming soon like if somebody's like yeah i would be able to commit a perfect crime those are the motherfuckers that will get caught first and if this episode is to show you a single thing is that also people who believe they're superior quite like leopold and Loeb here are always the dumbest individuals on this planet like, you never want to be the smartest person in the room. Because then you don't learn shit. You don't take anybody's opinion into account. But no, these two people thought that they can get away with this. That this is the perfect way. And it's just so mind-boggling when you learn the rest of their story. Because this is going to be one of those where I don't condone crime. But, like, they had a good thing going that wasn't really harming anybody. And then they just went left and everything went to shit. Because that's what happens when you go into your criminal ways in 1920s. And even more so today. It will come as no surprise, though, if you have ever listened to an episode of this podcast, that I am not into old-timey cases. There are just some of them that are so distant to what the reality would be today, to what the psychology would be today, that I just don't even want to delve into. There are people who love them and podcasts who love covering them. Me, not so much. But today's case, I was very surprised to have loved researching, especially because it doesn't fit into what I believe about old-timey cases. It showcases so much about like people's mentality, about their psychology when thinking of what they would consider a perfect crime and how they would get away with it. And it also had some of the most interesting points about the society raised at their trial. So just like every other case where two men meet one another and decide to commit crime together, this one started with a plan being set in motion. A perfect crime required, of course, a perfect victim. Somebody from a family similar to the ones Leopold and Loeb belong to, meaning quite well off. Because the whole plan had to revolve around a $10,000 ransom. Their plan was to kill a young man, to kill a victim of their choice, ask the parents for the ransom money, and even though the child would never be returned, the parents were not to find their body, they were not to find out that a crime has happened, they were to be lulled into the belief that by paying the ransom money, they're gonna get their child back. And on the other end, then it would mean that Leopold and Loeb would be able to collect that money and celebrate it in style. They found their perfect victim in Loeb's cousin, Bobby Franks. I don't know what the thought process here was. You're gonna doubt their mouth and thought process and hypotheses a lot of times in people's stories. Because usually, right now, with the knowledge of true crime that you have in your head, a perfect victim 
would never be a family member because the first person somebody is going to suspect is another family member. But these two motherfuckers lived in 1920s, so they didn't know better, I guess. Or maybe they did, they were just dumb as fuck. That meant that on May the 21st, 1924, the plan was finally set in motion. They were just driving by the street, Leopold and Loeb, that is, when they saw the cousin, Bobby Franks, passing them by. One part of their plan was set. They have rented out a car under a pseudonym so that nobody can connect it to them. Now, as they're driving by the street, they see Bobby walking on the pavement, and of course he knows Loeb, at least. So, Loeb suggests he gets into the car and they can drive him home. It will be faster for him to get back home. But, at first, 14-year-old Bobby Franks refused. But then, in what I assume is like the slowest, awkwardest ride by a child that is walking on the pavement... Loeb starts chatting with Bobby about his tennis racket that he was using and sort of tries to get Bobby to approach the car, to get closer to the car so they can chat about this racket that he's going to show him. This is super weird because according to plenty of sources, Loeb is actually sitting in the back seat. So it's not even that this kid is speaking to the driver. We don't even know if he knew Leopold. We just know that Loeb is literally like in the backseat being a complete creep. Bobby, as you would expect from a young teenager who trusts his cousin, he eventually gets into the car and he sits in the front seat and starts chatting about this tennis racket with his cousin who is in the back seat. But as soon as he looks towards the front, Loeb strikes him with a chisel from the back seat. And he, it is said, repeated that a couple of times and eventually even placed his hand over Bobby's mouth to keep him from screaming. After about four strikes, Bobby remained conscious, but only barely. And this is when Loeb would pull him into the back seat and shove a rag down his throat, which would be enough to kill the 14-year-old boy. Now, a couple of things here. Chisel, I'll put it on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. It is literally the thing that, I don't know, you use for like scraping things, like scraping paint. And then rag is a cloth that, you know, normal people used to like clean their house and clean their bathrooms and stuff so it just there's a couple of things here where I was like okay I need google because I do not fully understand the old timey words (laughs) immigrant immigrant vibes all along as you could imagine blood was all over this rental car but of course it's not under their name so they still believe they can get away with this Some of the blood was even splashed onto Leopold's pants because he was sitting next to Bobby as his buddy Loeb was killing him. But they had to continue with their plan. Both Leopold and Loeb had disposed of a 14-year-old Bobby Franks and after that they set their ransom letter plan into motion. They dropped it into a mailbox knowing that it's going to arrive to the Franks household early the next morning. However... A jogger passed Bobby Frank's burial site, saw him and called the police that same day. So the parents were called and they eventually confirmed the identity of their son. 
That being the breaking news, in all of the newspapers, both Leopold and Loeb now knew that they had to come up with yet another plan. I mean, there was still a chance to blame it on somebody else, to put somebody else forward as a suspect, and to move on to bigger, better crimes. You know, how would they connect this to them even? Like, they fought through the process of renting a car. Loeb was his cousin. Like, nobody's gonna look at the two of them. But they didn't take into consideration one important bit. And that is that one of them left his glasses behind on the scene of the crime. In order to understand how these two individuals are so dumb, let us go into their background. Because it it kind of has some clues towards why, why are they so fucking stupid. So Nathan was born... Oh God, this is gonna be a struggle... As Nathan Frodental, it sounds like fraudulent, it sounds like Frodental, which, you know, he was kind of a fraud. So, Nathan Frodental Leopold Jr. on 19th of November 1904. So, hey, I'm doing this close to his birthday. Yay, I guess. I don't know, rest in hell, bitch. I don't know what to tell you. He was born in Chicago into a wealthy family. Both of these kids were filthy rich. He was born into a family of immigrant German Jews that apparently made it in the transport industry and they had some transport-related fortune since their arrival to the US. Apparently, according to him, okay, I have seen in most sources this is a self-report, but Leopold was a child prodigy. He had an IQ of 210. He spoke his first words age only four months old. <laughs> I just, he had such great imagination. I love it. I love it. No, definitely. The one and only person. I love it. And of course, was always surrounded by nannies, by governesses who were just feeding this ego from since ever she was four months old. Who probably started this gossip and then he was like, I mean, yeah, I did. Yeah, my IQ is 210. You know what I would do with people who claim that they are geniuses, but it isn't proven? I just give them like really hard numbers to multiply in their head. I know that's not how geniuses works, but I just want to see them squirm. (laughs) Be like, oh, so what? You can't work as a human calculator? Well, fuck you. I don't believe you. So pretty much, according to all sources, he was a self-described genius. He was beyond that smart. Like, if he wasn't such a douche, maybe people would actually be buying into the fact that his IQ was high and all of that. He finished high school by the age of 16 and graduated from the University of Chicago when he was 20. And he graduated with one of those Phi Beta Kappa honors. So it means to me that he was in one of those creepy societies fraternities, whatever you guys call them. (laughs) I'm gonna get fucking shamed by Americans. It is said in so many articles that it was his intelligence that set him apart from everybody in his school and that that was what caused him to make some friends wherever he went. But then a lot of other sources state that, yeah, that might be because he considered himself superior to everybody. In 
relation to both like family wealth and also his own intelligence. So it will come as no surprise that when his family moved to an exclusive Chicago neighborhood of Kenwood, he was also transferred to a private Harvard school, which would just contribute to both things, the lack of friends, further intellectual development, and just further thoughts about how he's even more superior than he was before. Some fun facts, as fun as they get really about Leopold, were that he was a well-known and respected ornithologist, meaning that he was a bird fucker. Just kidding. I respect bird lovers. He was a bird lover. Birds, as I have learned last week after researching for a mini-sode, don't mostly even have penises. And we highly suspect that Leopold and Loeb were homosexuals, maybe. It's just alleged. But yeah. He wouldn't be a bird fucker. Why is that where your mind went? I just wanted to clarify because I said it. I had a slip up and now things are coming into your head. They're not. They're normal people out there, Maya. Well, our boy Leopold, along with a group of his peers, actually discovered a new species. Kirtland's warbler. You'd think any normal person would hear this and drop it. No, I went on to this bird's motherfucking Wikipedia page because I was like, this makes any sense. He did not discover a bird, okay? Like, he did not just name a bird. Like, this is just his ego. And partially, I was kind of correct. So there was a taxidermist called Norman Asia Wood that was presented with a specimen and then they traveled to the area where these birds were discovered doing his taxidermy shit so basically killing birds and he discovered like the breeding grounds the migration grounds for all of these different species including this warbler person (laughs) including this warbler bird and Leopold was studying under woods at this University of Chicago and with him and other bird enthusiasts they would travel to Michigan to that area where Woods spotted warblers while he was killing other birds for his taxidermy shit and they were just making scribbling down the notes like on parasites, on the breeding patterns, you know, things that you do when you discover a species of birds. So technically Leopold was more of an observer. What I'm trying to say is if a guy tells you they have a big dick, ask them to show it to you, okay? Don't just believe it because they say it. Because there is a pattern that needs to be broken. And with Leopold, it is very much about this man's ego. Like, what what is next? He's like, yeah, I invented Apple TV. Like, I'm the new Steve Jobs. Bitch, like, it's 1924. It's very far from being possible. In another life, he might have pursued a career with birds in ornithology. In another life, he might have gone on to study at Harvard Law School. You know, but then, every time I say in another life, I remember Katy Perry's song, the one that got away, and I just want to do it in that rhythm. But then the one that would not get away showed up, and that one would be Richard Albert Loeb who was six months younger than Leopold, and he was born on the 11th of June 1905. Loeb was also born into a rich family. He was born to a wealthy Jewish lawyer, who then went on to become a senior executive with a department store company called Sears. 
which is still running from what I know in the US. He was also raised in a very similar environment, meaning surrounded by nannies. There was one disciplinarian one whose name we even have and was also said to be extremely intelligent, but, according to people, not on the same level as Leopold, which is mostly probably also according to Leopold himself. If you hear something clinging against my teeth, it is Strepsils. I'm already halfway through the pack and it's not helping. It's just fucking addictive and it gives you diarrhea. Don't do it. But I don't know what else to do with my freaking throat because I'm losing my voice. And I still need to record a bunch of content for this week. They don't care. They just want the normal sound and you're giving them the clickety tablet lozenge against your teeth. Back to low, because this is pretty much where the similarities ended. Because Lope was quite rebellious. People kind of say that he was showing a distinct side, kind of like Jekyll and Hyde, characteristics from an early age. That he was a popular child, but also there was a sinister side to Lope. According to all sources, the street's the place to go. That is according to the weather girls. But according to Loeb, that was pretty accurate because he elaborated this whole fantasy life. He started lying from a very early age. And he'd be that person who would recognize, like he would acknowledge that lying was wrong, but he would still continue to lie. The same with little petty thefts as a child. He knew that it was wrong, that it was criminal, but he still continued to do it. Because he constantly saw himself as superior to others, as a person who will not get caught. Soon, as it often happens, these minor interests kind of can develop into obsessions. So, from minor family theft, you know, just nicking like pocket money that he thinks he deserves from his dad, well, that went into shoplifting, into vandalism, and eventually even arson. Leopold would later describe this period of Loeb's life by saying that he simply didn't see why he shouldn't have anything he wanted and would go to any lengths to satisfy his desires. By a ton of people who analyzed this case, it seems like Leopold was able to recognize that he was in advantage because he was born in a rich family, that this was an advantage over other people. So he saw himself in this superior light, but he also knew that that was an advantage, that not everybody had it like that. But Loeb saw this privileged lifestyle as his absolute right. Like, he wanted that for himself. And he also probably being smart to what degree we don't truly know. But if he was smart, genius, whatever you want to call it, he also probably knew that eventually, even though he was born in kind of generational wealth, he will need to make his own money. And he considered it his right, so he's gonna do anything to get that money and to stay at that rich level. And that's why he would resort to crime. Loeb also skipped multiple grades and was eventually admitted to the University of Chicago in October 1919, when he was aged 14. This is when he would finally meet Leopold. 
you can see how a friendship like this could happen. Both of them are significantly younger than anybody else at the university. Both of them consider themselves geniuses. They were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. But actually, they were quite different. And not just personality-wise, but also how they applied their rich lifestyle to the university. While Leopold seemed to be thriving in this environment, you know, his interest in birds was explored, he was in different societies, fraternities, he was mastering a dozen languages, I've seen in some resources 15, but that he spoke five fluently, which I'm like, you go polyglot. I could have done so much with your life. Well, Ob wasn't, because he was to a certain degree a product of the tutors at home, and as soon as that was lifted, as soon as his strict nanny left his bedside, well, his grades started plummeting. Just like with a crime these two men were going to commit, there was a level of opportunity just by the fact that they lived two blocks from one another. But if you think about their personality, again, that is where that stopped. These two men on paper should have never even considered each other friends. Loeb was an extrovert. Leopold was kind of weird, kind of awkward. But just like it happens with the fatal kind of attractions, the more that Leopold learned about Loeb, the stronger the attraction for the boy has gotten. According to a plentiful of horny article writers, Loeb was impossibly good-looking. He was slender, but he was well-built. He was tall, with brown blonde hair. Humorous eyes, what does that mean? And a sudden attractive smile. So like, He can have a creepy smile, but then when he puts it on, it can be suddenly attractive. And he was just one of those people that charm came to him naturally. And Leopold, on the other hand, supposedly a prodigy, supposedly somebody who spoke his first word at four months old with 200 plus IQ, he saw that that destructive behavior, the petty crimes, Loeb by now graduated to stealing cars, setting fires, smashing storefront windows. And Leopold was like, you know what? That's it. That's what I want to tame. That is who I want to be with. Just keep that in mind if we are considering the whole madness for two pattern, the whole folly ado, because they were an excellent fit psychologically. The opposites attract, right? One of them is brilliant, has a brilliant mind, but is kind of socially awkward. And then the other one is handsome, is gregarious, is super friendly and amicable. Meaning that Leopold would, of course, want somebody who he sees as superior, even though it is technically glib, it is technically just on the surface, and Loeb would find an excellent alter ego for the whole fantasy world that he has established in his head, in which he himself is supreme. This is when a light bulb went in Leopold's head. He was like, I can change him. I can tame him. But the man couldn't tame his unibrow. Like, were tweezers not a product in 1920s? What the actual fuck? 
Well, something that people don't emphasize enough in this story is that both men were at this point 17, 18, once they met each other. So all of the ideologies that are going to fuel their semi-young minds are going to be quite impressionable for these two men that have, you know, skipped classes, don't really have many friends, weren't really street smart, if we are honest, none of them, because one was committing crimes and then the other one was book smart. So a perfect combination and a perfect timing for Leopold to introduce his boyfriend to the philosophy of a German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. Or Nietzsche. Nietzsche. This philosophy will, of course, clarify everything for the two boys, because the theory, main theory behind Nietzsche, was that some individuals are simply better than other people. For Nietzsche, the meaning of life would be to live authentically and powerfully, creating one's own goals and values. You read that and you're like, okay, wow, yeah, goal-getters, get it, Nietzsche. But then you realize that most of his works were from 1880s, and that does mean something, that most of his central points of his philosophy were that God is dead, and that rejection of Christianity is a meaningful force in your contemporary life. And that by meaning of life means to live powerfully, create your own goals and values, Yeah, that means that you need to reach self-perfection through creative drive and a will to power. And in doing so, you will become a superman or an overman, ubermensch. An individual who strives to exist beyond the conventional categories of good and evil, master and slave. It is easy to see how one person would feed this ideology to another person who is already obsessed with crime. And it's easy to see that people who believed that both of them have their high IQs and because of that they can commit any crime and get away with it. Fueled by the Nietzsche's theory, it is also not hard to understand how This is something that would inspire them to push their limits and see how much they can get away with. But I personally find that master-slave aspect of Nietzsche's philosophy to be interesting because I think you can see this case as Foliadu, as Madness of Two. The two of them were both obsessed, were both on the same level, were both on the same page, and they were like entranced, isolated with each other for the past four or five years, and you know, filling each other's heads with all of these things, and then they finally, you know, wanted one perfect crime. And after that, they would have possibly separated, and when separated, they wouldn't commit crimes together. Or you can see it on the other end, as the master-slave relationship. We spoke about Leonard Lake and Charles Ng on the podcast and on the channel before. Like, I kind of see this case more like that, more that one person here was dominant and the other one was following. Both of them had criminal intentions, like none of them is innocent here, but I'd like to know what you guys think. What do you see it as? More as Foliadu, the madness for two, or more as one being a clear follower? And then, 
whatever you see it as, who is the primary? Who is the master, if you wish? Because if speaking of folia do, we are speaking about the primary person that the other one follows. And if we are speaking about master and slave, then one of them is dominant and the other one is submissive. Because Leopold would later write how Loeb's friendship was necessary to him. And that his motive, to the extent that he had one, was to please him. For Loeb, you could really say that the crime was just more as an escape from the ordinary boring world, kind of like an interesting exercise, you know, just like a brain exercise that he has to do, and then he was gonna come back to the boring reality, and then maybe plan another perfect crime as an escape again and again. By the summer of 1921, the two of them were inseparable, and it is likely that they had started a sexual relationship. I don't think anybody can like confirm or deny for sure, but according to multiple sources, that seems to be what happened here. But also both of the boys wouldn't ever confirm this aspect of the story, which isn't really surprising considering it is the 1920s. So for a few years, the two of them are together. They're spending most of their times together, sharing their ideologies. And then over the course of a few months, we don't know exactly when the robberies started, but they started committing them together. So it wasn't just Loeb committing crimes now. They weren't really concerned about the money because they had plenty of it, let's be honest. If you are rich, you're really just robbing places for the thrill of it. What mattered the most, and I think this was the two of them just making test runs, was that they would get away with a crime. And also how it would make them feel afterwards. They're probably getting off, let's, let's just be honest. But then November of 1923 comes around. On November the 23rd that year, it seems like a turning point has been reached. Leopold drove Loeb to Michigan, to the campus of the University of Michigan, all the way from Chicago. So it was a six-hour drive, and they planned to rob some of Loeb's classmates, which, like, why? (laughs) Also, I think these were, like, ex-classmates, because he went to University of Michigan and then moved to University of Chicago, which I don't know if universities were considered colleges or, like, high schools, Was that what they were called? Because at what point can you... How many classes can you skip? Like, can you go to university at the age of 10? What the fuck is going on? But instead of a huge haul, instead of this huge robbery here, they were only able to take about $80 and some pocket knives from his ex-classmates. And Leopold kind of reached a turning point here. He was getting really tired of the two of them just getting the small loot. And also how this relationship, this part of it, really seemed to be one-sided. Like, he wasn't getting the same thrill out of it. He was itching for more. To which I put in the script, this is like when a couple decides to have the kids in order to save their marriage. Like, let me roll my lazy eye. Like, why is this the thought process? Because the stakes had to get higher. So Loeb sees that. He sees that his lover is suffering. Like, he needs to be on his level. Both of them need to be this Superman. Both of them need to be above somebody. Like, they can't be at all these different levels. One of them cannot be inferior to the other. 
So Loeb suggests, well, they should plan a perfect murder. If they were able to pull it off, they would also be able to do anything that they wanted. The world will suddenly become their oyster. Please explain to me the logic. Also, one of their first mistakes, because if you are good in one area, like if you're not getting caught, like you're getting the thrill, you know, you aren't really doing harm to some, I'm not saying go rob people, okay? I'm not condoning crime. But you're kind of good in one area. Don't go into a whole different territory that you know nothing about. Why are you changing your lane? Stop changing your lane. Because both of these individuals believed that the faith was on their side. Up until that point, they didn't get caught. The crimes never hit the papers. Yeah, because you were robbing your students of like pocket knives. It's kind of a different fucking territory, my man. All of the robberies they committed, all of the arsons, they would never reach the news. But they wanted a murder to get the city of Chicago talking. Make the headlines and get away with crime. That was the goal. And suddenly what was a dream for one of them was to become a dream for the other. The fantasy lives were to collide. While we are witnessing a continuance of a flu here on my end, well, the two of them finally started plotting their crime. What they needed was a plan. So that winter between 1923 and 24, they started formalizing every aspect of a murder. The fact that they worked on this for like months and that that was the outcome is just, again, it's just why you should just never, never go the criminal ways. Because literally the more planning it goes into it, it seems like the less are the chances that you will outsmart anybody. Their plan of getting the crime into the news was to make it sensational. And in order to make it sensational, they were to kidnap a teenager. That would guarantee that somebody was going to publish it as headline, as front page news in New York, in LA, in Chicago, in all of the big cities of the country. And then to themselves, they would be saying like, I mean, even... If we don't get the credit for it, my love, we would know. I would know you did it. You would know I did it. We would know that we did it together and it would bond us for life. What a sad little pillow talk, Jane. From this point on, they really get lost in this battle of the egos. They didn't really care about murdering the victim and they didn't really care about the ransom. But they thought it was critical to minimize the likelihood of the two of them being identified as kidnappers. And who is going to suspect two rich men? Why would they ask for $10,000? Why for that particular sum? And also, why would they just kill a random teenager who was apparently Loeb's second cousin? Why would he kill somebody that he knew, a member of his family? Like, it's just purely dumb. And that is what they were counting for. Bobby was one of the most gifted students of the Harvard School for Boys. And he was living in the south side neighborhood of Kenwood. So again, just a couple of blocks from where they all lived. And what I found bizarre, because you can't really find many details about Bobby, was that just two weeks before he would end up dead, As a member on the school's debate team, he participated in a debate on the subject of capital punishment and argued against it. 
On the afternoon of the 21st of May 1924, Leopold and Loeb were just driving their rental car slowly down the south side of Chicago. Now, half of the sources say that they were looking for a victim, that this was actually a random attack, that they were just looking for somebody passing the street and that they came across Bobby. In my mind, I think this was planned, just like with everything else, and then they fucked up. But I think every single little bit here was planned, and they thought they had this genius mastermind plan going on. So around 5 o'clock, after driving for a few hours, they were ready to abandon the plan. But then they spotted Bobby Franks. They asked him to get into the car and Bobby shook his head saying he was almost home. He said, no, I can walk. But then they said, come on in the car. I want to talk to you about the tennis racket you had yesterday. I want to get one for my brother. Again, certain sources, because everything about this story is a myth at this point, will say that he moved closer to the car and just as he was standing by the side of it, Loeb from the back seat opened the window and grabbed him, pulling him inside and continued talking, hoping to persuade the boy to climb into the front seat. We know the rest of the story. Bobby will end up getting into the front seat of the car. Some sources will state that he was pushed as soon as he came closer to the passenger door. Some will say that he entered voluntarily, started talking, and didn't actually expect any danger to come. After Bobby was struck by the chisel and killed, the two men would drive their rental car to Marshland area, near the Indiana line. They're going to take the body of Bobby Franks out of the car, they stripped him of his clothes, and then poured hydrochloric acid over the 14-year-old's naked body in order to make it more difficult for him to be identified. And after this, they stuffed the body in a concrete drainage culvert. Again, I'll put it up on the screen. It is obvious once you see it what culvert means, but I didn't know again. It's like a drainage pipe. It is like one of those pipes that opens up in like the marsh areas or like the river areas. My first analogy was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because I'm the 90s child. After they dispose of this teenager's body, they return to Loeb's home. This is where they burned Bobby's clothing. And that evening, Bobby's mom would receive a call from Leopold, who identified himself as George Johnson. How did they think that they were going to pull this off? I genuinely don't know. Because there was no like voice mufflers. But then again, if she didn't know him, I guess it would have worked. Anyways, he tells her that her boy was kidnapped, that he was unharmed, but that they should receive a ransom note soon. The next morning, the two of them probably as content as the person that just pissed after the longest time they were holding it in. Wow, really? That was that was your analogy. Jesus, there is a reason why certain things are not an expression, isn't there, Maya? Because you come up with them on the spot and they sound lengthy, sound hella lengthy. The next morning, the Franks family received a special letter asking them to secure $10,000 in unmarked bills and telling them that they're going to receive further instructions that afternoon. 
Leopold called Bobby's dad shortly after three o'clock that afternoon, telling him that a cab was about to arrive and that he should take him to a specified drugstore in South Chicago. Like, they even paid for a cab. Like, what is going on? How did they reach from point A to point B? But, as we know, the body is about to be found, and so will the evidence directly pointing to the couple. Because our boys, our geniuses, made a couple of key mistakes. First, the body was clearly poorly hidden because it was found the very next day. Second, they used a typewriter to type a ransom note. Cool, it wasn't their handwriting. You'd think like, okay, sort of smart. But then they shoved that typewriter into a lake. So that was found. And the most condemning evidence was a pair of glasses, spectacles, that were quite particular and would 100% be connected to Leopold. And they were found dropped as they were trying to hide Bobby Frank's body. As soon as the police found Leopold's glasses, they entered them into evidence, and then they were able to trace the ownership to him because they went to a local optometrist, right? They don't have that many of them during 1920s. This optometrist, the police will learn, had only written three prescriptions like this. So, of course, by system of eliminations, well, they reached Nathan Leopold. And he calmly told detectives, once they went to question him about it, that he must have dropped a wild bird hunting earlier in the week. He wasn't going to go down so fast, okay? He was still going to play his bird lover strategy. If you remember that car, though, well, it's not like Leopold had an alibi, but his chauffeur did say that the car couldn't have been used, that Leopold couldn't have driven it because he had worked on it throughout the day and it was in the garage late that evening when he went home. So, according to sources, confronted with this information, Loeb would break down and confess that they rented the car. He would just cave in immediately and be like, oh my god, you caught us. Which is like, have you thought of a single point beyond actually committing a crime? Like, the getting away part doesn't seem to be thought through to even the slightest degree. So Loeb would confess first and then Leopold would confess soon after him. After they confessed, the police would trace that rental car. There were still blood stains in it. Why do you expect rich kids to be able to get rid of the stains? They won't be able to. There was a typewriter that they found in that lake. And they matched the typewriter with the ransom note. And also they even found a hotel room that you registered as their escape spot. They found even a suitcase that they had left behind containing a library book checked under lobe in that hotel room. Nathan Leopold once said, The only crime a superman can make is to make a mistake. Which uh, seems like they made a couple because it took the police only 10 days for the crime to be solved start to finish. All that was left now was to go to trial. And the trial, there seems to be a lot more at stake. Like, both the prosecution and the defense attorney seem to be powerful people who had something to lose, or rather, things to gain. Both of them had agendas. The prosecutor was Robert Crow, 
And this man had visions to use this case in order to launch his political career and to get it even to a higher place. He wanted to become a governor one day. And of course, this is a sensational trial because, hey, at least they have succeeded by the choice of their victimology, which I hate to say, but at least they did something right in order to make the headlines. So Krav would use this place in order to give him the momentum to win the upcoming election. Meanwhile, the defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, was hired by the two men because he was famous around town for getting his clients acquitted. Here, though, he knew that this won't be possible. So he upright told that to Leopold and Lowe because they confessed and both families wanted to avoid the death penalty. So that is the best that he could offer them. So you have a prosecutor who is looking to get these boys hanged in order to advance his political career. And you have a defense attorney who is looking to advance his own agenda of getting clients where he could possibly fight successfully towards abolishing the death penalty. The trial, which technically was a hearing because of the entry of the guilty pleas, both boys did plead guilty in front of the judge, would finally start and would last for just over one month. The defense team presented certain psychiatric evidence that would describe them, that would describe their emotional immaturity, you know, everything we spoke about, how they skipped a couple of grades, how they never really had friends, how they were obsessed with crime, obsessed with Nietzsche and his philosophy, how they were abusing alcohol. Everything from that to then going a bit left and saying how they had glandular abnormalities and sexual longings and insecurities. Their defense psychiatrist, William White, said that Leopold's pathology began from his early childhood. He said that he was teased relentlessly, that he was estranged from his peers, and that he was, therefore, because he was a prodigy, a lonely and an unhappy child who would go into his inner world where emotion counted for nothing and intellect was all. As if that wasn't sensational enough, he then continued to say, trapped inside his world of fantasy, Nathan imagined himself a slave who saved the life of his king, Richard Loeb, and thereby had earned the king's gratitude. There was another defense psychiatrist, Bernard Gluck, who testified that Leopold adhered to a purely hedonistic philosophy, that all action was justified if it gave pleasure. I love how they're using this as a defense. Like, that is completely normal. The fact that their egos were fed and put on a pedestal their whole life, no, that is scientifically proven as correct. He said that Nathan's, Leopold's ambition was always to become a perfect Nietzschean, so like a follower of this philosophy, and to follow it all the way through in order to become Ubermensch, all of that, you know, the next Hitler, whatever you want to see it as, I kind of push it towards the furthest, the most radicalized version, because I believe these boys want it to as well. According to Gluck, Leopold told him that he was jealous of the food and the drink that Loeb would take because he could not come as close to him as did the food and drink. 
and this led him to believe that Leopold definitely had a paranoid personality and has given in to a delusional way of thinking. As for Loeb, William White described his main outstanding feature as infantilism. He said that Richard Loeb is still a little child emotionally, still talking to his teddy bear. <laughs> this guy hated him, I love it. Different witnesses were called to further shame Loeb, different classmates and associates of his, saying how, you know, he had even inappropriate laughter, how he was belligerent, he constantly lacked judgment, and how he was always childish. And then other witnesses testified that Leopold was quite weird and egocentric and was of an argumentative nature. As to their chemistry, these psychiatrists had explanation for it as well. White said that Nathan and Richard complimented each other. Richard needed Nathan's applause and admiration in order to confirm his own sense of self. But Nathan also needed Richard to play a role. Richard Loeb took the role of a king who was simultaneously superior and inferior. It is a bizarre confluence of two personalities, but each would satisfy the needs of the other. And interestingly, Nathan would never on his own initiate the murder of Bobby Franks. And he also doesn't believe that Richard would have ever functioned to his extent all by himself. So when the two boys came into this emotional relationship, this is the result. The homicide of a 14-year-old boy. It doesn't come as a surprise that this is all sensationalized and that the prosecution psychiatrists are going to have a different opinion. So they put a guy, William Crone, on the stand and he said that in his opinion, Richard Loeb was not suffering from any mental disease, functional, structural, nothing, nada. He said there was abundant evidence that the men were perfectly oriented at the time as to the place, as to their social relations, like they were aware of how rich they were, they were aware of the exact motives behind the two of them committing this crime. There was no evidence of any organic disease of the brain. He said that Leopold showed remarkably close attention, detailed attention, to everything in life, and that also applied to this crime. Apart from his testimony, it seemed like the state, the prosecution, didn't really focus on, you know, proving that they were mentally delusional, whatever, whatever. It seemed like they weren't focused on the bond, rather they focused on putting about 100 witnesses on the stand, proving every single element of the crime, sort of taking that apart. That is how they believe they're going to get their death penalty. And these two were also asked questions. I think they did take the stand eventually, because we do have some answers that they have given on the stand. And I just want to read them out because it just shows how little thought actually went into this, how they literally did it because of nothing. Like, there was no solid motivation as to why this crime should have happened. Like, there was no delusion. When he was asked the question, when was the first time you felt remorse, Loeb answered, you would think the right answer would be like, yes, I felt remorse immediately, straight away, oh my god, as I struck him, I tried to revive, whatever. No, he said, I felt sorry about the thing, about the killing of the boy. 
Oh, well, that very night. But then the excitement, the accounts in the paper, the fact that we had gotten away with it, and that they didn't suspect us, that it was given so much publicity, and all that sort of thing, naturally went to the question of not feeling as much remorse as otherwise I think I would have. Then they asked Leopold, you wouldn't take $10,000 out of my pocket if I had it. To which Leopold, again, geniuses who nobody prepared for this, said, it depends on whether I thought I could get away with it. And that was all it was, wasn't it, in the end? The media, of course, took the wheel here. They were calling it jazz media, they were calling them jazz killers, they blamed this on the erosion of Jewish values, saying how they were just like hundreds of thousands of rich Jews who don't know what to do with their money, and then they let their children grow up without any feeling of Jewish responsibilities. Then there were, of course, the psychologists of the time that would volunteer physiological readings, basically being like Leopold's beefy lips suggested that he had some nasty wishes, he had some nasty desires, and Loeb's narrow lips suggested that he lacked willpower. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> I mean, that is kind of true, because I have very thin lips and I cannot control my power. Willpower cannot, does not exist. So, wow, yeah, I didn't think I would learn a thing during this research, and I still didn't, because that's some bullshit. And their defense sure as fuck did not help these kind of news articles, because on the third day of the closing arguments, their defense attorney, Darrow, explained the behavior to the judge and to the jury. He said, wealth has its misfortunes. In his view, they were victims of affluence. They were victims of being rich. So hard. Oh my god. Let me go and cry in my fucking poorest, dirtiest apartment about how these two boys were victimized by the rich lifestyles. He explained in his closing statements how they were actually suffering the kind of agoraphobic reaction to their own privilege. Meaning, not closed spaces, but they really wanted to escape it at all costs, and they felt trapped. People would later describe Darrow's arguments this way, saying that he was describing the boys' motivations and their actions as nature made them do it, evolution made them do it, Nietzsche made them do it, so they should not be sentenced to death for it, because, you know, the fault, of course, falls on all of these factors. It falls on each. Like, they shouldn't have read him. He shouldn't have written his philosophy pieces. They shouldn't have been raised rich. Meanwhile, the state attorney kept their closing statements short and succinct, arguing that the nature of the crime and the law ordered a judge to hand down a death sentence. But somehow they were spared, and Leopold and Loeb received life in prison. On September the 10th, 1924, Leopold and Loeb would receive a life sentence for murder plus 99 years for the kidnapping because of their age. So, technically, you would think they'd never be out. Now, let's speak briefly about their prison life. They were both initially held at this Joliet prison. Even though it was said that they were kept apart, they still managed to hang out because they were still inside of the same prison. 
but later Leopold would be transferred to Stateville Penitentiary in 1931, and Loeb was transferred there as well. Once reunited, they decided to expand the prison school system. So they worked on to add a high school and junior college curriculum. But using their high IQs in order to make this academia project fry will be short-lived. Because on January the 28th, 1936, Loeb would end up being attacked by a fellow inmate with a razor in the shower room and he soon succumbed to his injuries and died in a prison hospital. The details of this incident will never be fully known. The news accounts would suggest that Loeb propositioned the other man and that the other man was maybe embarrassed with his behavior, maybe he just wasn't gay, maybe he just had a razor in his hands and then stabbed him for about 50 times. But it was ruled that this man who killed him was only defending himself. After Loeb's death, Leopold continued with his work on the academia on the curriculums. He was a model prisoner, he worked on revamping and reorganizing the prison library, the schooling system, teaching its students, the volunteer work inside of a prison hospital, and he would later say that all of his good work was actually an effort for him to compensate for his crime. And I don't know how to feel about this, because his further actions are kind of strange. So, in the early 1950s, there was an author called Mayor Levin, who was a classmate at the University of Chicago, and she asked for Leopold's cooperation to write a novel that is based on their crime. But Leopold said he doesn't want the story in fictionalized form, but kind of said he's going to give Levin a chance to contribute to his own memoir, which was in progress. So he himself was writing a book, but still didn't want others to fictionalize it or write it themselves. Levin to that said fuck you and went on to write a book herself. And she portrayed Leopold as a brilliant but deeply disturbed teenager, psychologically driven to kill because of his troubled childhood and an obsession with Loeb. Leopold would say that this book made him physically sick, and it wouldn't be the only time that he would try to block the book publishing or the production of something, because in 1959 he was seeking to block production of the film version of that same book, Compulsion, and saying that the book invaded his privacy, defamed him, etc., etc., Eventually, the court ruled against him, basically saying that he is perpetrator of the crime, so it's not reasonable for him to argue how it injured his reputation. So when you hear that, you're thinking, okay, I mean, you can understand that it's kind of gross, it is fictionalized crimes, it is sensationalizing them, all of that, but then... All of that time, he was working on his own memoir called Life Plus 99 Years. Well, it was his autobiography, and it was as a part of his campaign to win parole. The autobiography usually would start with like someone's childhood, you know, how we got here. But apparently this book that is on Amazon, I haven't read it myself, but according to the accounts online, it starts with the account after the crime, which, like, what is the point? So, of course, the criticism was that there was a refusal to 
say anything about his childhood, describe any details of the murder, and that it is solely in order to repair his public image. But the book and numerous unsuccessful petitions finally yield some success, because after 33 years, he was supposed to serve life plus 99, but after 33 years, he was paroled in 1958. Later, as he was released, he attempted to start a foundation, and he called it Leopold Foundation, super original, and it is to be funded by the royalties of the book, and the whole purpose was to put those funds towards the emotionally disturbed, the arsler, or delinquent youths. But this was rejected because it violated the terms of his parole, probably on the grounds of him never approaching another youth, another teenager, ever again. He then moved to Puerto Rico and he married a Latina, which he definitely does not deserve. He married a widow florist, he earned a master's degree at the University of Puerto Rico, and then taught classes there. He became a researcher in the social services program, worked for urban renewal and housing agencies, even did research on leprosy for the School of Medicine that belonged to the University of Puerto Rico. His intention was to write another book that would follow his life after prison. Basically, he wanted to speak about anything but everything before the murder. But he never managed to accomplish that, because he died of a diabetes-related heart attack in 1971 at the age of 66. Before we go to discuss the motives and touch upon Foliadu again, what do you think about his time after prison? Do you still see it as him being as calculated as he possibly could have? Or do you see that maybe he was genuinely repenting? Maybe he genuinely wanted to aid delinquents? Maybe he thought that he can set them right on the right path? And they wouldn't end up like him and Loeb? Maybe that was the motivation behind it. That he went to Puerto Rico because he can start from page one. Nobody would know his name there. Or that there was a purpose to that as well, that he did go to Puerto Rico to start from page one and that he wanted to reinvent himself so that nobody could see him as Nathan Leopold the criminal, but rather they could see him the way that he wanted to see himself, that the ego was always taking the better of Nathan Leopold here. But now on to the motives. So here you can see this as being madness for two, the psychosis that occurs in one person and is then transmitted to another. Here the primary person, if we are considering this theory, would probably have been Loeb. And if the secondary person, Leopold, was to have been removed out of this situation, the delusion of the threat or the delusion that these two would have, would have disappeared. The foliadu is the shared psychotic disorder that usually happens only in the long-term relationships, and the boys would match this criteria because they were in a relationship for at least five years before they committed a crime. I mean, whether they were in an actual relationship or, you know, they were just like best of mates, they were spending a lot of time together. 
We spoke last week how if you are to believe in the madness for two, when the homicide occurs, it is usually one of the three motives. Defensive, obstruction of the fulfillment of the delusion, and the threat of the separation of the other party. Here I think we can see it as multiple ones on this three-point list. But for me, the only one that I think there is some strength to, there is some pizzazz to, is the threat of the separation to the other party. The two of them thought that only the other one will understand them. That even if they were to commit this crime, and even if it wasn't to be sensationalized, that they would know that they have committed it. So it only mattered to them what the other person would think about their crime. But just like I don't fully buy that this was defensive in any way, I don't fully buy that they were fulfilling their delusion and that this was the obstruction of this, I kind of don't 100% buy that there was a threat of the separation of the other person there. But that leads me to some final questions, just like they were asked in court and different psychiatrists had different opinions. Do you think that they would have killed on their own? As I mentioned, they kind of do remind me on a very much lower scale of Charles Ng and Leonard Lake in the fact that they were both evil in their own ways. Their egos were both way too high and nobody was giving them a reality check. And I think even if a different person would have entered their life at a specific time, at this time when they were super impressionable, if there was even a different spark, even a different book, anything really could have caused them to commit crime. But I also think they had to have the proving themselves factor. And for that, they did need one another. You can let me know what you think by either commenting on a YouTube video. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Sometimes I show up with my actual face and sometimes I don't because I look and sound disturbingly disgusting. And also you can always tweet at me at thatbampod or Instagram me at that same handle. I spend less and less time on Instagram because I think it is a dying social media page. But now you are going into your next Zoom call. And uh, you can start a very socially acceptable conversation of which social media is a dying flower. Which one is a dying bird in the taxidermic life of the inspiration for Nathan Leopold? Or maybe you would like to opt in for an even more niche topic. Yeah, because discussing the birds and the inspirations for Nathan Leopold isn't freaking niche as fuck. Maybe you just want a quiet day. Maybe you just want to observe your colleagues. Put a scale of 1 to 10 down and just put where their ego is on that scale. And then once you do that, just check in with those colleagues on their IQ, on their general opinions, you know, what literature they read, who inspires them, what philosophers they might have read in school and that have left a significant impression. Because we can learn a ton from the old-timey crimes, even though I don't necessarily like them. Sometimes they show us that nature versus nurture dilemma in a completely different light. And sometimes they also show us that rich people can kill for no apparent reasons. That there are people out there who can have everything and can still go to commit crime just for the sake of it. 
just because one of them knows how to successfully feed the other one's delusions. So in not being delusional, you do what? Until next week, when I will hopefully sound and look like a normal human being, you do this. You make this world a better place. One motive at a time. Oh yeah, if I am right, the next episode is literally 100. So... I'm going to be giving you a couple of mini-sodes until I make a big 100. When I'm, you know, in full strength, in full power, we're gonna have some BAM time. Some good BAM time. Because that is why this podcast is named By All Means Necessary, okay? Because we do things by all means necessary way here. And now, bye fuckers. Until the next week. Bye. Bye.